Hi, I'm Bernard Fraser, and you're listening to Season 2 of The Essence of Cool. On today's episode, we chat with the incredibly prolific Jay Semko of Canada's Music Hall of Fame inductees, the Northern Pikes. Jay gives us a peek inside the early days of the Pikes, their latest album, Forest of Love, Jay's long battle with addiction, and Jay's pick for the essence of cool, Keith Richards. Let's get started. Things I do for money, I'll never understand. The world is just a marble in the palm of my hand. 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 Jay Semko, welcome to the Essence of Cool. Hey, thanks for having me here, Bernard. I'm very, very happy to be here on this uh on this nice kind of hazy day. <laughs> <laughs> so you're just telling me off air that you had a bit of a flight nightmare getting back, but you had just played Toronto. You played uh, my old stomping grounds, Lee's Palace. How did it go? It went great. It was fun. It was, uh, there was sort of a concert series that's been set up, I guess, since really the early part of this year. And I don't, I don't know, I, I know factors involved in maybe the city of Toronto and uh, just rejuvenating live music. So they've had, I guess, sort of special kind of shows at Lee's Palace over the last while. And they've had like, uh, like the Northern Pikes and the Watchmen and TPOH and 5440 and a few other groups of note. And uh, I guess kind of oldies oldies old senior rock people but, <laughs> like but us <laughs> really big names to play lee's palace i find that remarkable the pikes played lee's many times in the past and they hadn't played there for a while but it was it was cool i i just really the, the that's one thing i think and you don't realize it until you haven't well if you don't know what you got till it's gone we know that mm-hmm. it's sort of that whole connection of being in a live situation communicating with people musically and even just a just to chat for a couple minutes you know and when you're finished those kind of things and it's not a they're not they don't seem big but they are big and Mm -hmm. especially when you haven't really had them happening for a while that's what i found and uh but boy it's well you know it's interesting technology marches on and i mean we've we use in-ear monitors now and I guess there's been the odd time we it hasn't been viable to utilize them, but really we our sound tech dean is is great at getting us set up in no time at all with them, and you're, we're very used to them. And and ultimately, I think uh, the the biggest thing about that is getting used to the fact that you're in a little bit of a vacuum. You've got these things in your ears. You've got basically headphones on, whether people can see them or not, but they're there. And I and I found what I do now is at least a few times during the night I'll I'll pull one out and just leave it out for a song and put it back in and and I'll, I think Brian actually leaves one of his out for most of the set and that way you can you can hear you know it's it's when it, it's very weird when you finish a song and you you know people are clapping and they're cheering you can't really hear it. Right. You can see, you see into the black void out there. You can sort of see. I think they like us, but you know, you pull out an earphone. Oh, they do. Okay, good. You know, so so yeah. There's there's technology involved, but you know what? We just at the end of the day, it's no different than 
when I started doing it in the seventies, you just, you plug in and you play music and you have fun with it and go. And it's, uh, you get to pretend you're 20 years old. <laughs> Are you still loving it as much as you did say in the late seventies, early eighties? I, I wouldn't say I'm somebody that needs, you know, like I, I'm not, I, I need to play live. I've got to be doing this. It's, it's not really that. I wouldn't say that's the most important part for me. I really do like it when I get up there. And what's the quote from somebody along the way? It might have been Keith. <laughs> he said, <laughs> they, 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 what they, in, mu- in the music business, you get paid for the other 22 hours, which right. is really, really, right. when you're up there for two hours or however long you're up there playing music for, that's really the, the joy of, of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And it's the other, it's the traveling and, and no sleep and all the other things that go along with that kind of thing. And, but you just, there's many of us, as you know, that we thrive on that. And, and it's so funny. I felt so tired before I was going to start playing at least. And I've still been recovering from COVID. I had it back in June and, and I feel like I'm finally now starting to get some of my old energy back little by little, but it's taken a while. I just, wow, yeah. even, you know, even sometimes things that I, <laughs> you start to think of yourself as like the you know, Tim Conway in the Carol Burnett show when he would play that character, like when I was a kid and he would always fall asleep all the time. Yeah, Yeah, I think, you know, he just starts snoring. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit of that. But the, uh, yeah, you know, I was so tired beforehand. And then you just kind of, kind of suck it up, as they say, and just kind of, okay, get yourself ready, get your gear, do what you got to do. And then you go out there and it's like, you feel great. You just woke up. <laughs> yeah, the, the gig has a way of energizing you, right? Yeah, it does for sure. And you're doing, you're sort of um, in front of audiences in at least three different ways these days. You're doing, you're working with the pipes, you're playing some acoustic stuff solo, and you're also doing some spoken word thanks to this lovely book. Um, <laughs> is there, is one of those more energizing than the other, or are they all kind of just in different ways interesting question i would say the second part i think it either they all are but in different ways i mean when, when i'm with the band i have i, I can say it's there's there's a uh, a power strength in in numbers and it's kind of nice to be part of a team because that's what you are you're part of a part of a team and you're going out to play when i go out on my own and play acoustic stuff it's it's me with my little system whatever i might be bringing for that mm. And I hop in the car and I go. So there's a certain amount of freedom in there that's kind of nice in terms of, uh, for instance, musically, if I want to change something. And I, I often start, if I'm playing, playing acoustic stuff, I do a lot of goofing around, and for lack of another word. <laughs> you know, I like to talk, and I, I'll, I'll stop in the middle of a song and talk if I want. <laughs> you can't really do that with a band. You, you have to kind of have a rehearsed set show to a, a greater extent anyway and and the readings the poetry readings i mean what i've been doing with those is i do mix a bit of music in there mm-hmm. and i find that that's kind of a fun thing and it people seem to like it it was interesting because the poetry book i've wanted to do that for years and uh and i talked to a publisher who said well you know is there a way you can incorporate because i was looking at trying to put some of my lyrics in there and then genie from wood dragon books had suggested well look you know, you've got a lot of standalone poetry. Why don't you combine this and make it kind of a, a thing as a, because I, I'm planning to do a number of books. I've got a lot of, a lot of material and I'm writing all the time and I'm working on a, a second poetry book that will be just poetry. It won't be lyrics the next time around. So, so finding a way to combine those, I learned a lot in the uh, creation of the book 
mainly I learned how hard it is <laughs> for people to, and how much, how much respect I have for people who are, who are doing that. Mm-hmm. There's a lot, there's a lot of attention to detail, a lot of attention to detail and a lot of proofreading and editing. And, you know, when I've started writing lyrics down on the page, sometimes things will sing really great. You know, they sound great when you sing it. What's the old saying? Aretha Franklin could Sing the phone book and it would sound great. <laughs> and because she's such a great singer and, and I'm certainly doing <laughs> Aretha Franklin, you know, but, but it is different though when you are delivering your, uh, your poetry through music, because it's, you, you there's a lot of the melody uh, and the music and all of those elements are a lot more forgiving than just seeing it written on the page. When you see it just written down, it's bare naked and it's completely exposed. And so I really had to go back to most of the poem, most of the lyrics that I put in the book and they're all from my solo stuff. They're not, they're not Northern Pikes lyrics because right. they're what the, those are now they're all, all Pike songs are considered co-writes between all of us because it kind of gets, once you start working on a song, everything gets lost in the translation and we just kind of leave it open and go, let's, let's just, all be part of this and that way we don't have to mess around with okay did did jim come up with 20 percent of the song <laughs> you know like we're not we don't do that we just sit around right. we just divide it all up right. but with my own stuff there and I, you know i co-write with other people and that's quite fun i enjoy co-writing mm-hmm. but when it came to the book it was uh it was just a good challenge putting it all together and putting the lyric and when you really look down at your lyrics and i think it's actually made me i think i'm hoping a little better lyric writer just from the point of view that I, I've had to really be very analytical about what I had in this book here. And it's made me think, okay, I have to, I'm trying to get to that point where I don't really need to edit a whole lot. And it's been a continual lifetime challenge. Yeah. <laughs> with music. And one of the great things about when you're writing and recording music with a band is you have co-conspirators, right. <laughs> you know, you're all, and you, they're a great sounding board and great editors as well. Right. And often they'll think of things that I have it, and same with me when I'm working with a band. I might think of something for one of the other guys' songs that, that they hadn't thought of. Right. You know, I can use examples like, uh, you know, when we did Forest of Love, the last most recent studio record released. Which is a brilliant album, by the oh, way. Oh, thanks, thanks. I, I, I'm really proud of that album. I think we did a really a really good record after having not recorded original new, mu- new, new music for a little while. And the we did that at the National Music Center in Calgary, Studio Bell, National Music Center, and uh, it's just a great studio. It's a big room. It's old school. It's the big room where you can set up live, and and they have these you know plexiglass dividers where you can kind of be in your own little recording aquarium and yet see the other musicians. You can all connect, right. and uh, it, we our our sort of our pattern for doing that was get in there in the morning, have a coffee, learn essentially learn a new song. And start working on it. Just start jamming on it, recording on it, and and finding what works with it. And get to the point where I think we got something here. I tell you, there's just an energy involved in that that I that I really really like in in terms of being able to all set up and, and work on things and not mess around too long with it. You know, in a band you can do that. With my own material, I tend to be <laughs> a lot more. I, I procrastinate procrastinate an awful lot more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and take a little more time to commit, but I'm learning, learning to do it faster. I mean, I'm, I'm working on a new solo project, which is going to be uh, all kind of 
and I, I, I hesitate to, I don't really want to call it a gospel record, and I don't really want to call it anything other than a spiritual, an album of spiritual music is how I would sort of describe it, right. covering, a, running a little bit of a gamut, but it's very stripped down and very, uh, very quick. I'm going in in October, and I'm doing the whole thing. I'm recording and mixing it in a week. It's just going to get done. Wow. The experience I've had over the years of doing so many albums over a long period of time is that I don't find it as intimidating anymore. And even though I'll never, it's like golf or something. You, like, you'll never conquer it. <laughs> you never conquer, <laughs> right. conquer recording or what you, you know, maybe some people kind of do, but, but I've been in t- a lot of different situations for recording and I've had a lot of pretty interesting experiences along the way. And it just comes down to, it doesn't really matter. It's whether it's you or me or Freddie Mercury or, Roger McGuinn. It, it doesn't matter. It, it, when it comes down to it, you just you and microphones and recording engineer with equipment trying to get the best, capturing the best sound possible. And it doesn't really matter the genre or the year. And I mean, one thing that's been really fun about doing the radio show, and I, it's a weekly show called The Songwriters on CFCR, which is uh, the community radio station in Saskatoon. It does broadcast actually over the internet, which is great. I get people listening from all over the place. And uh, and I really try and cover all genres in there. And when I go back to some of those early recordings, especially I can think of right now that I have a, a multi-album set called The Capital Years, and it's Frank Sinatra. And a lot of it's with the Nelson Riddle Orchestra. And just the dynamics and the playing ability for, cause there, there, there was no overdubs. They right. were all in the room. Okay. The skills that the recording engineers would have to have at that time to, for mic placement and so many factors involved, you know, to just make it happen. And as a vocalist, Sinatra was, you know, for all, for whatever faults he may have had in other ways in his, in his life, he was just an immensely talented singer. I heard, uh, a Northern Pikes demo. I thought it was a demo. It might have been the six-song EP. I don't know. I'm in Avenue Road Music slash Avalon Records, owned by Brian Chater and Ed Leonard, with my friend Jody Calero. And he got this cassette. Never heard of these, this band before, Northern Pikes. What the hell's that? Put it on. And we were both so struck by how polished it was, how, how fresh, how interesting the songs were. Um, do you remember sending those, those cassettes out? Was that an, an effort to, to snag a contract at that point? Were you looking for publishing or what were you? We were just more than anything, just really trying to get ourselves better known. Okay. Our, our goal as a band, this was our realistic goal after having been in, in lots of bands previous to the Northern Pikes, all of us had played. You know, we were pretty experienced, even though they were, we were in our early 20s. We had all been out and done road trips and played in various bands in lots of different situations. And uh, so we recorded a six-song EP in 1984, just called The Northern Pikes. And then we did an eight-songer in 1985 called Scene in North America, S-C-E-N-E. And then uh, and numerous recordings in between. A good friend... Mm-hmm was and still is a good friend, Mitch Barnett, who was a recording engineer at a place called Studio West. Studio West was uh, a studio designed, it was actually way ahead of its time in many ways. It was designed as a retreat studio 
outside of Saskatoon. And they built a really nice house there. And the studio was great. It was really a, a great setup in, at Pike Lake, Saskatchewan. Oh, <laughs> cool. This is the real place, <laughs> Pike Lake, which is really, it's not a suburb, but it's, you know, a short drive outside of Saskatoon. But you really feel like you're you're way out in the woods kind of thing. Like, it's, right. it's pretty nice. <clears throat> anyway, Mitch was the head engineer, and I've known Mitch since grade eight. <laughs> he would give us a break in terms of a little bit of extra time to get things done and give us tips on how, how you could make better recordings and what sounded better in certain situations. I mean, he was learning at the same time, but we were all kind of doing this together. And I think that was an important part of it, but we had a picture, the band had a picture of what we wanted to do. And our realistic goal was to make independent recordings, send them out, hopefully get some airplay at community slash college uh, indie radio, get somebody to to play them. Mm-hmm. And we really didn't expect or plan or hope to get to sign a record deal. What we thought was realistic is that we could make our records good enough that we could be picked up by a major label to distribute them. Right. And that was our, our realistic goal was to have whatever Northern Pikes records, or it was black and round records was our label in the first one. And, and uh, hoping that you know, like a, one of the majors would pick it up and distribute it for us. But no, we, you know, we, uh, one good thing that was a really good idea that a guy that we were working with, Robert Hodgins, who was kind of acting as our manager in the early days, although he never really wanted to do that. He was an agent or a booking agent who really helped us with a lot of extra things and added his two cents worth and expertise. And one thing that was very valuable that he did is, First of all, we we put these packages together, and we would send two copies of the uh, of the vinyl to radio stations, literally across Canada. They were hard to find. There was no internet then, and trying to find the list of all the stations, I actually wrote to the Library of Congress in Washington D.C., and they sent me back. <laughs> they mailed me back. Snail mailed me back a list of all the stations in the U.S. Wow. So we we in you know was in a, I was back living at my folks' place in the basement and we were I remember we were uh, the band many many days of just stuffing cardboard kind of envelopes taping them and putting the card in that's what I was getting at with Robert Hodgins he had this card and, and it was self addressed envelope any comments or anything have you have you played the record or do you like the record or that's a great idea. or something. And it and which we hadn't thought of. Robert thought of that, right. and with a stamp on it already. And we started getting these things back, and it was great because it actually, it, first of all, gave you a sense of confidence to know that somebody was playing your music somewhere. Right. And it actually started charting in in some charts and and doing quite well in both Canadian, I guess, college radio and U.S. college radio. And that started getting uh, record labels interested because the word got back that this is a band that's creating a bit of a stir independently. Uh, on their own and we might be interested and having said that I mean we had we had lots of people like people from pretty much most record labels in Canada came to see us I remember we the first show we ever did in Toronto and it's a good thing we were really naive because we would have been nervous but <laughs> it was at a place called the Holiday Tavern in Toronto in November of 85 and uh, apparently every A&R person was there 
for the show, but we didn't know. <laughs> wow. <laughs> the only person we had kind of met was Doug Chappelle, and he had seen us in right. September, but, and he actually flew to Saskatoon to see us, and he liked us and actually talked with us and stuff like that, but we had situations happen where I can remember we played in Calgary at, at the university, at the bar at the university, I'm trying to remember the name of it now, but, and there was a person who flew out from Toronto, and he was the president of the company, one of the major record labels, and, uh, we knew that he was coming. And so Robert, uh, Robert Hodgins, who was kind of our acting manager at the time, came out for the show to kind of talk, you know, to maybe be a liaison. And <laughs> I mean, we finished our first set and we're all like, so what do you think? Did he like us? <laughs> Robert said, uh, he left after the second song. Oh, no. <laughs> so, and those things did happen. I mean, you know, but we were we were kind of a weird band for a lot of people at the time. I think we were... Although we weren't, we just, I think more than anything, we felt like that because we were a little bit isolated out here, you know, and you just didn't have the, some of the connection that you would have. And, and our first trip to Toronto, like I say, in 1985, in the Pikes was really an eye opener. It's like, wow, they, there are places, clubs where they want you to play all your own music. And that's what people are expecting. And we just loved it. We thought this is great because our big struggle always was trying to get gigs and trying to play your own songs. And they were, you know, we, we did a lot of stuff through the Alternative Music Society, which was a group of people in Saskatoon that would uh, set up uh, concerts from touring bands. And th they were great because you got exposed to some neat stuff. I remember seeing Simple Minds. <laughs> There's a town outside of Saskatoon, which is becoming kind of a suburb of Saskatoon called Martinsville. But back then it was considered, you know, a small town way out of the way. And, <laughs> and there was a, the, the the Martinsville Elks Hall <laughs> with the picture of the queen, you know, about the little right. stages and stuff. That's I saw Simple Minds play no. to about a two-thirds full crowd at the Martinsville wow. Elks Hall. And they were really great. They were really different. I mean, they were right. I, you know, very different anyway, and really good. And it was just that was, I think, with their second well, what was the album? Sons and Fascination, maybe it was maybe it was that album that, that they were out. Oh, it was before yeah. New Gold Dream then. Before yes, it was before they really became, yeah. they, were, they were an unknown alternative band, basically. So, you know, when you see those things, they, had, they leave an impression. And But we ended up uh, having to, at the beginning, our goal was to make money, to pay for the recordings. So I remember talking to Rog, Robert back in early 1984 and saying, we're getting this band together and... We want to go out and play clubs. We want to make money so that we can stash it and do recordings. Our goal is to be a recording act. And, but we know that, and we, we were all sick of our jobs and, you know, I've worked at, all of us have worked at various, had, had worked at various places. And there was a circuit at that time where you could play six nights a week throughout uh, Western Canada and a lot of even oh, smaller cities and large towns would have a, a bar in it and you would go in and you play Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday were kind of like a few people come in, check out the band, see what the word was and and if you were liked, you would get a good crowd for Thursday, Friday, Saturday and that was kind of what it was and mm -hmm. they would usually have either a band house which was never <laughs> never whenever you heard the word band house it always <laughs> indicated <laughs> perhaps a subpar housing, right? <laughs> but, uh, or if it was in a hotel, you get a hotel room, you know, sometimes that kind of thing. And, but yeah, no, we did that. We, we went out and I just said to Robert, just book us as much as, and as often as possible. And we went out the first 
we were gone. Well, I think we did about three months worth of, of gigs, mainly. Yeah. And they were all in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba. And then we went into the studio and we did that first EP in, uh, I think we did the whole thing in recorded and mixed it in five days, I think. Wow. In the, uh, and our, we fired the drummer, uh, you know, the, the first, <laughs> the first session, he just, it wasn't happening. Wow. And uh, there were some other things involved too, you know, and you feel bad about these things. You don't want to do it. But at the same time, we were driven. And I mean, the core of the group at that time was Brian and myself and Merle. Mm-hmm. And we knew what we wanted. We kind of knew what we needed to do to get there. And you sometimes you you can lose patience in terms of waiting for people to kind of catch up to where you're at. So we went through a lot of drummers. We we had uh, Don Schmidt, who became the Northern Pikes drummer eventually. Merle and I had played with him in a band called The Idols previous to the Pikes. And we loved Donnie's drumming. And he was, you know, he was a great fit in many ways. But at, when the Northern Pikes started, he was newly married with a small child and had a pretty good job working in a in a medical supply warehouse, I believe. And uh, yeah, he had like a mortgage. He was, he was a grown up. <laughs> the rest of us were still kind of, you know, couch surfing and trying right. to pick up a gig now and then, you know, like that's kind of where that was at. But he, uh, so we, we did have a number of drummers the first couple of years. And then finally, really what happened was Donnie got divorced or was going through a divorce in 1986 and was ready for a change from where what he had been doing and said yeah let's give this a try i don't mind i'll go out in the road and play and uh, i don't know if he expected the road travel because we we spent a lot of our lives on the road it was just play 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 and uh but that whole goal was get the money together and we so we covered the cost we did that first ep and we put it out we had like sort of you know packaging b <laughs> where everybody would come over and we just load these things up and remember to put the little card in there, a little kind of a one pager and a photograph, the stuff that you would send out mm-hmm. and just did it. Just sent them, first of all, all across Canada and then sent them all across the States. Now, while we were that period of time, really from early 1984, because our first Pikes show was in March of 84, right up until about the fall of 85, somewhere, I guess, really about springtime, I guess within a year after we had first started playing live we really got tired of being or pretending we were a cover band you know and i say pretending we were in terms of the fact that we were not that wasn't our goal we weren't there were there are people out there who are fantastic Mm -hmm. cover groups and they they're great at that and uh, we just never really were and our focus was really on our own music which we would try and sneak in and we kind of got to the point where we were adding more of our own original music into our sets all the time. And it didn't really fly with a lot of the places that we were, we were playing at. So right. in the spring of uh, 85, we almost broke up. I remember we, we all kind of went for lunch. <laughs> and our at the time, when the band first began, I was playing guitar. I didn't play bass. I had had surgery on my wrist. And I didn't even know if I could play the bass again because I couldn't bend it. It was just I had tendon surgery but I could play the guitar. I could still get to the guitar. It's just the bass with the spreading fingers and right. that kind of thing was a lot more challenging. Anyway, so Glenn Hollingshead was our bass player at the time. And I played guitar and Brian played guitar. And Merle was really more or less a lead singer with me singing a little bit is kind of what that was. And, and a revolving door of drummers. 
And, and sometimes that included Don too. When he could, he would fill, Donnie Schmidt would, he would fill in with us, et cetera. And in fact, interestingly enough, he happened to be playing with us when Doug Chappelle from Virgin Records flew out to Saskatoon and saw us play in early September of uh, 1985. And Donnie was our, he was our fill-in for, for that week. With, we had other gigs going on and Doug really fell in love Doug from Virgin Records really fell in love with that lineup, and 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 I can see why. Donnie was, you know, he's just a really great drummer. He's he's got great tempo, and he's really a song drummer. That was the that was the trouble, and I think part of the reason that it took a while to find to to be able to to get Don in the fold. We had we played with some great musicians who are really really great. I would never say anything bad about any of the drummers that we played with because we were lucky, and they were great musicians and a lot of really nice people too. And but. With a couple of exceptions, most of the drummers were not really song people. Like they weren't listening. And that's sort of a, a learned skill, I think, in terms of a drummer. And it's really interesting seeing like these Beatle clips of the stuff that's going on and, and looking at Ringo when the guys are learning a new song. He just kind of, that's kind of Donnie. Just sort of, let me listen and take this in and see where this is at, you know. And uh, But unfortunately, some of the drummers were just really... I want to show you how great I can play the drums instead of just listening to, to the, you know, suiting the song. But having said that, like I said, we played with a couple of just great, great drummers, but Donnie was the one we ultimately, I guess, wanted and ended up getting. I mean, it's clear that you are in love with the process of writing the song and you are so prolific. I mean, 11 solo albums, seven Pikes albums, how do you decide when you're writing a song, whether it's a Pike song or it's a solo? It's a good question. You know, there was a time when I would kind of have to take a look at it and go, okay, is this sort of a song that would work with the Northern Pikes? I mean, when we recorded Forest of Love, and that was recorded, I guess, really, really, we started it in 2018 and then did another set of sessions in early 2019. And uh, came out in June of 2019. I didn't really have songs for the record. The songs that showed up there were bits and pieces. And more than anything, I, I kind of wanted... It had been so long since we had done an original Pikes recording. Right. I didn't really go, oh, okay, let's kind of hear what Brian's doing. And it was the first record with Kevin, you know, and it, I, we actively wanted him to contribute songs. And so it was kind of a three songs for Brian, three for Jay, three for Kevin, sort of. And then one where it was kind of, kind of Brian, I guess, don't you give up. Mm -hmm. But having said that, really, what we do now is there are no boundaries. It's not, okay, this is Jay's song, and this is how you must play it, and this is what you must do, and this is what I want here. And sometimes that that applies to things. There was, you know, some at least one song that I know Brian and Kevin had demoed because they, they did a record on their own as Kane Potpin. And oh. they had a, a song they had demoed that for some reason wasn't working for them in that format. So they brought it to the band and it turned out great. It was one of those ones where, oh, this is cool. And and so there was a little bit of a looseness. So I had a lot of half-finished songs going in there. And then I realized, okay, well, you got to finish this. So really at night in the hotel room, I was sharing a room with Dawn. Donnie and I were rooming together in Calgary and, uh, he was kind of my sounding board. I go, what do you think of this? And I just on the acoustic guitar. And I basically finished off the songs and then presented them when it was, you know, I guess my turn to have 
one of the songs up there. But, you know, as an example, and talking about how a band, and this is really why the Northern Pikes are truly a band when we put things together. I look at the, the opening song on the record is called uh, King in His Castle. And the uh, I had it, but I was writing it, I thought of it as more of a lazy, bluesy kind of song. You know, the king in his castle. Oh, wow. do, 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 like this. Do, 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 do. And this more kind of laid back, kind of sleazy, bluesy sound, you know. Right. And uh, and listening to it, the other guys listening to Brian, his instinct was, oh, no, I think this is a rock song. I hear a rock riff happening in there. And I was like, what? <laughs> he said, and he's like, no, no, think like 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 Led Zeppelin, how they put a little riff in there or something, you know? And, okay, and then, yeah, we noodled around on it, and the song really went through quite a prolific change over the course of the day with us jamming and working on it. And then we, you know, started getting takes, you know, recording versions, and then we'd listen and... You know, you record it and you go, I think that might be all right. Or, you know, you do a take on it and go, well, no, I don't know. I think we should bump it up a notch. So, you know, we did everything to mostly, not maybe not everything, but the majority of stuff was done to a click track, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, so you could, you you know, you could go back and change things easily. It's interesting because the control room at National Music Center, it's a floor up. So you're in this quite a vast for me anyway, quite a vast recording area, which is great because you could you could have amplifiers and drums and everything. And it was kind of, right. you still got that, at least to a large degree, a pretty good sound separation. And at the same time, you can see each other and feel like a, a band playing, physically playing together. Mm-hmm. So, But that song really went through a big metamorphosis. And I, I, I give Brian big credit for coming up with that thought of let's change this and taking, you know, taking it somewhere else, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I mean, we're working right now, we're in the latter stages of a new Pikes album, which was originally intended to be kind of a tribute album uh, to Snow in June as the 30th anniversary. Oh, wow, okay. And Snow in June came out in 1990, mm-hmm. it was the original release of it. And so we wanted to do kind of a, like a tribute reworking of the songs but it has changed. I mean, Merle is not in the band anymore. He hasn't played with us since 2005. And, uh, right. and Kevin is in there. And so what we did is we ended up recording uh, a bunch of songs from Snow and June and some new ones as well. Mm-hmm. So it's become this thing where it was originally intended to be this tribute record that's now become this entity unto itself, its own thing, I think. Right. Kind of like a new record, although a number of the songs are reworkings of, of old songs, but some of them are frankly unrecognizable from the original version. I mean, they just, mm-hmm. they've changed a lot. And it's, it's very, very much a stripped down. Some of the songs almost have a bit of a bluegrass feel. Some of them are just very acoustic and somewhat uh, atmospheric, just mm-hmm. depending on what it is. And we had a couple of guest musicians come in and play on it. And so, yeah, we're in mixed mode right now. So, we're in the uh, mix. <laughs> speaking of uh, of uh, guest musicians and speaking of Snow in June, um, I reached out to a mutual friend of ours, Ian Tanner, who played Ian on Tanner. Snow in June. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just said, can you give me some thoughts about you know, recording with the Pikes on Snow in June? And 
this is what he sent me back, and I'm going to read this verbatim. Um, he says, they were all such great people. I know how I would feel in the middle of a lengthy album production project if some guy showed up out of nowhere, supposedly ready to play some parts. They were always kind and friendly to me. He says, I got to Bearsville, Bearsville Studios, where he recorded, and I've got another question about Bearsville after this, uh, reasonably late into the project. If I recall, there were they were there for six months, but he had question mark. He wasn't sure if, if you were there that long. I was there in late November, early December. One of my first memories was watching them put the song Snow in June together. That epic ending took a fair amount of collaboration between the band and Rick Hutt, but it didn't take long before there was some real magic happening live off the floor. I'm thrilled that later in the process, I was able to play piano on that track. I remember seeing them sing Kiss Me You Fool right before my eyes. They were in different booths, but they all sang together. Uh, I guess my biggest memory of that time is not actually about the Pikes themselves, but about the bizarre, wonderful experience they had recording with Garth Hudson. I wasn't there while this took place, but I heard about it. That man was an insane genius. He is an insane genius, I should say. If I recall, he had a song to play an organ solo on. The short solo took most of the night to record, interrupt by moments where Garth would just go to sleep in mid-session. <laughs> According to Garth, he said, some people say I have that sleeping sickness. It's probably an exaggeration, but apparently after that sentence, he appeared to be sleeping for a few minutes while Rick and the band are thinking, what the fuck? <laughs> and he opened his eyes and said, I don't think so. <laughs> um, anyways, he goes on, uh, he says um, that he was in the washroom down the hall from the control room at one point and heard this big bassy boomy voice that he knew to be Garth's so he hid <laughs> he hid in the bathroom until he was gone because he didn't, didn't want to come out and confront him anyways he says anyways it was an amazing album I love every song on it I love getting to live vicariously through them for a few weeks decades later it was nice to see them again in Kitchener and again everybody was so kind and welcoming to me after all these years Jay's been particularly kind to me it blew my mind when he said that he got a kick out of seeing some of my posts on social media he is one of a kind and one of Canada's best songwriters. Love him. Wow, isn't that nice? It's very nice. Ian was, uh, yeah, no, they came down, and it was a, it was a long process. I mean, that record we started it in August of '89. I had gotten married, and then I went on a honeymoon with my, well, now ex-wife, but wife at the time <laughs> in 1989. And then I came back to Saskatoon and then immediately went right down to Bearsville. And I remember it was Bearsville Studios was just outside of Woodstock, New York, right. in the village of Bearsville. And it was really a beautiful spot. It was up in the mountains, uh, Appalachians. And uh, the studio itself kind of had, it had two studios. One was a, a really big room, which was great because that was part of the reason that we, I, I think we really liked it is you could, you could, you could record live and it worked well. We had done the first part of, uh, Secrets of the Alibi at Bearsville, right. and that was the, the big deal. Is we like we were there for a few weeks, it's, and then we went up to uh, Liz Studio uh, in uh, Quebec yeah. for the rest of the the album there for Secrets. But with Snow and June, we did most of it at uh, at Bearsville. There, there was a road. There was a house that you would stay at, and it was kind of a, a nice old house that had was divided in half. A big two story house sort of down below, like maybe a quarter of a mile or something from the uh, from the studio area. And then to get to the studio, we'd kind of walk this winding road. But, I mean, there was like a, a you know, a, literally a, a babbling brook there <laughs> that would become kind of a raging torrent when it rained right, right beside the house. And uh, 
And apparently there were, you know, bears and I, I got freaked out one night. A, a deer jumped out right in front of me and it was just, it had just become dark and I was walking back to the studio and it's, I mean, you're in the, you feel pretty isolated there. You couldn't hear traffic. Right. You hear coyotes howling at night and there were animals around there and it was really, really interesting actually because you go from this super quiet wilderness experience to you walk in the door of the studio and there's all these people this beehive of activity right. going on. and there was always somebody in one of the studios there they had a mix one of the studios was uh really for tracking and it had an, a neve console that was really well uh well liked and it was uh it, it had a really warm sound it had belonged to i believe the who or Pete Townsend, that was sort of the story behind it. And oh, wow. uh, it had it was quirky. It had the odd thing that kind of had to be <laughs> updated now and then. But it's just the, the you know, bringing everything through that board. People just loved it. It warmed up the sound. It made it really, right. a really nice warm sound. They also had another studio at Bearsville that was a mixed studio that was set up, I think, in large part for Bob Clearmountain. Because Bob Clearmountain, uh, well-known producer, engineer, mixer, he had a house just outside of uh, Woodstock, and it was kind of like a cottage, although we went to, it was more than a cottage. It was a really nice house. <laughs> but Bob, he had a few houses, I think. I think he had one in New York City and I think one on the West Coast as well. Mm-hmm. But he uh, he would go up there and do a lot of work. He loved, he loved being up there, and it was a little more relaxed environment than New York, which is, I think, where he lived most of the time at that time. And uh, he, we would run into him all the time at the, the you know, the coffee thing <laughs> or whatever. Lots of people actually it was really quite an interesting place. But Garth, man, he was like just an amazing, amazing, is an amazing musician. And I mean, I, those are some of my fondest memories actually of, of working on that record is, is getting to hang out with Garth. He was a really different guy. And when you got to know him, he was so funny and he, but brilliant musician. He could play everything and just had such a great attitude about every he just there was just a joy of music in garth and so he became kind of part of the band for a few days and it was just great having him there he was just you know he was never a person to really if he ever uh, expressed an opinion he just had such a way of doing it in such a a positive and tactful way for suggestions and and so while we were there we also had uh john sebastian i guess from love and spoonful and and many other many other things. Just what a great musician! And I didn't realize what a great harmonica player John Sebastian is. And at that time, he was going down quite regularly to New York City, which was about a two-hour drive from where we were at in Bearsville. And he was playing with a lot of blues artists, and he was the go-to, you know, blues harp harmonica guy. He was, and he was that good. He could really. I did things I didn't know. His father was a, a great harmonica player, and his, in fact, his father could play classical harmonica. His father was the first harmonica player to ever play with the New York Philharmonic Orchestra. Really. <laughs> Which wow. I didn't know. <laughs> I just great, and and I remember when so Garth Garth came in. Or I, there was Garth and John there, both for the Kiss Me You Fool sessions, and also we had Stan Celeste came in as well. Stan Celeste played piano on uh, a number of songs on the record, and he he ended up sort of taking yeah Richard Manuel's spot in in the band. Oh, okay. When 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 he passed away, right. and so we got to do a gig actually the following summer 
with the band. I remember it was in Calgary at the Olympic uh, ski hill or whatever, and it was a big festival there. And it was cool because, I mean, it, it was, you know, Levon was playing and they, wow. Robbie Robertson was not playing with them, but they had Stan and they had a, I uh, can't remember who the other guitar player was, but uh, yeah, well, and I remember Rick Danko came to the studio one morning and he was just a coolest guy in the world. He was funny because <laughs> Garth was there and he came to sort of say hi to Garth. And tons of musicians lived around there. I remember going up to the, we tried to get out of this little bar, this little pub in, in Woodstock on a Saturday night because the word had gone around that the, some of the local musicians might be there. And, and they were. And I mean, Rick Danko was up on the stage playing and Garth was there and other people. It seemed like it was a, a, a place where a lot of music people liked to go because there was a good music community. And yet you're also, you weren't that far away from New York City. Uh, one of the things that is sort of always uh, top of mind whenever I'm speaking to people such as yourselves, um, who have had a, a pretty amazing career, but um, I'm thinking back to my conversation with Carol Pope, uh, who um, you know, I was very fortunate enough to, to write a song with. And uh, we talked about the, the whole concept of then and now. And, you know, you know, like you, she got all kinds of radio play um, and is still getting lots of radio play for some of those sort of key songs, you know, um, as as the Pikes are getting lots of play on on the oldie stations. Um, Etc. But it's really difficult to get new stuff played. Carol can't get on the radio to save her life. Do you experience the same issue for the new stuff? Yeah, interestingly enough. Well, that was, I guess, one of the things that we really were, we hadn't really <laughs> dealt with for a while was trying to figure out, okay, do we put a single out? Do we do, what do we do? And I guess we kind of did, but they were never really, they, they weren't really sent out to, uh, commercial stations and i guess there was a little bit of a we were trying to figure out whose whose job is that because the, the new rec the you know force of love is distributed through universal <laughs> and uh but when we the places interestingly enough that did embrace that record were the cfcrs the community radio and college radio right. that would actually spin it and I, I i know exactly what you're talking about with carol pope and there's I'm more referring to commercial radio and exactly that's what i'm exactly and and I, I know exactly where she's at because we found that we started to experience that i guess with the album it's a good life which came out in 2003 so that's almost 20 years ago mm -hmm. and certain radio would play it but there's just there's a thing and i don't know maybe it's because we we stopped playing for almost seven years and got out of the loop and came back and did it again and a lot changes in seven years i mean that's yeah. <laughs> so for them to kind of embrace us as as current artists was not really happening a whole other wave or generation of artists had sort of come out in between but yeah it's it's not easy as as an older group as a as a veteran group I mean, you kind of, you do the new album. Let's face it, people are hiring us because they still want to hear Girl With A Problem and She Ain't Pretty and Teen Land and Things I Do For Money and right. Kiss Me Cool. Or, those are songs that, you know, that are made a mark during a certain time frame. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, I think we've, I think we're, our songs are as good as ever, really. I think the, the well, recording is as, as good as ever and that kind of thing. It's just... Forest of Love is an incredible album, Jay. An incredible album. I mean, top to bottom. Not a. I mean, every song sings in a certain way. Um, but you know, having such a great piece of work like that, and the struggle to get commercial radio to play it must be really frustrating. Yeah, yeah. I think. Uh, yeah, it was frustrating. 
I mean, we just didn't really, I think we, we learned some, it was, it was a learning experience in some ways of like, because we hadn't put out new, new music in that way. You know, when I put out my solo albums, you know, I was on a label busted flat records out of Kitchener, which I really liked. And, and Mark Logan, it's, it's his label and he's really nice guy. So a great friend. And, uh, but at, at one point I sort of thought, I think I should just be doing this back myself again. So I got it back and I sort of have my own label, which is just inner expression records. And, but it's up to me. It's totally up to me. I'm a, it's a one person show really is what it is. Mm-hmm. And when you're uh, doing things on a different scale, like the Pikes, there's a lot of moving parts to kind of keep track of all the time. And <laughs> so having, you know, having said that, I think when the new one comes out, we'll, it's like that was the record that brought us into the modern era in some ways because we hadn't put out new music. There had been some best of albums that had been released mm-hmm. in between there and that kind of thing, but not uh, not new music trying you know, to be in the current vein. I don't know. I guess the nice thing is that there are many alternatives for people to hear music now. It's not really so well-defined as it once was it used to be i mean when the pike signed the record deal back in the 80s i mean that was still the way that you got known Mm -hmm. you know was signing to a trying to sign or get distributed through a major record label Mm -hmm. now i don't think so as much now i think you can do so much on your own from square one from recording your your album you can make if you want to have the patience and you know trial and error experience you're going to have, then you can make great records yourself. You can do them yourself. Mm-hmm. And there are many alternatives out there for getting getting your music out there, as opposed to the old model, which was get signed to a major record label and have them kind of do all the, all the stuff, all the promotion and publicity, which is still something that they're really, really good at. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the main, that's where they shine more than, more than anything. And I, I'm not complaining about universal. I think they've been actually quite good with us uh, along the way, but, but like I say, it was a learning experience last time around in terms of, okay, what are our responsibilities? What is, what is the record labels responsibility? And just sort of defining that a little more, mm-hmm. more clearly, but, I think one thing that's kind of nice with doing it a lot more in the do-it-yourself manner is there's not as much of a time time restriction or time limit on there. And we got kind of really used to that, you know, from the model that we were was utilized with us from 87 till 1993, all of those records coming out on Virgin because it was like, okay, first single comes out, number of weeks go by, you do promotion, publicity, the album comes out, you get out there, you know, there's usually a few singles, a few videos being shot and you tour, you just go, you just play anywhere, everywhere, go, go. And if you can get opening slots for bigger artists where you can expose yourself to more people, great. Then if not, then you do it in a club you just, everybody's going from your agent to the label, to uh, the band and the, the, the crew, it's it's all a huge group effort that happens at once. Whereas, even though, like for instance, I mean, Force of Love came out in 2019. Our big promo push was supposed to be the summer of 2020. You know, although we did do some shows in 2019 promoting Force of Love, but but obviously that got changed through COVID. Everything right. got altered. Right. So we're still kind of looking at it as we're still kind of promoting 
Forest of Love. To, to us, it's still a relatively new album. I don't think we really got the uh, promotional mileage of letting people know about it. You know, having said that, of course, people, they want to hear Snow in June and they want to hear She Ain't Pretty and they want to hear songs that, that were popular in their day. But I'll tell you, our fans have been really pretty welcoming and pretty pretty open with our new music. I can't, I can't say that I've really uh, had anything but really good experiences with people regarding that. They're generally very encouraging about, about the new music. I want to just talk a little bit, very briefly, about uh, the book again, the poetry and lyrics of uh, Jay Semko. Mm. Um, and one of the things that really struck me uh, because of my own history is a paragraph, and if you'll indulge me, I just want to read this paragraph, your words. A huge part of my life, which you will discover when you read the poetry in this book, has been my experiences and challenges with mental health and addiction. I am a recovering addict, a term which I can uh, consider includes my addiction to alcohol, living with bipolar disorder. In recent years, I've become more open and vocal about these uh, once taboo subjects, which now, quite frankly, I sometimes just won't stop talking about. And thank God you won't stop talking about it. Um, I am too a recovering addict. And one of the things that we talk about in recovery a lot, uh, which you'll know very, very well is the, when it got to be the worst, what was your, you know, your darkest night. Can you tell me when that was, when did you realize, Oh man, something's got to change. It should have gotten bad way sooner. You know, I mean, I should have probably done something about, you know, I should have got help way sooner. I can remember being, oh, God, so many things. <laughs> I'll tell you one story. I can remember being, we were staying at the ho this hotel in L.A., and we were at the Mondrian Hotel, and we were down there doing some promotion, and we got dropped. The American branch of Virgin dropped us from the label literally and it was like the same day the record came out in canada oh, wow. so it was this weird and i'm not making any excuse at all i'm just give setting up the background for it but anyway this is you know it's, I, I could have had a, it, an excuse for me to drink would have been it's tuesday <laughs> you know what i mean it didn't really right. i didn't really need a reason but right. but anyway the uh we've, <laughs> the same day you're this joyous occasion of the record being released you get dropped from the U.S. branch of the label. So it's like, okay, there's an excitement factor of the records out in Canada now. And then there's a sort of a, a factor of, okay, now we've got to find a new record label in the U.S., which is a big, a big task, you know, to kind of, to mm -hmm. do, or at least, it, well, it took us about a year. I mean, we ended up signing with Scotty Brothers for Snow in June. That was the label. And they did, they did, a, they did a decent job with Snow in June, but, but it was a weird situation. So I remember, I ended up drinking a lot, and uh, I don't remember. I, I was a blackout drinker, so quite often I would drink to the point where I did not remember things very well. And people would have to tell me what you, what you did, what I did the night before, and yeah. things. Like that. Yeah. And I'm sitting there, and I, I get up, you know, and I'm just feeling like garbage the next day, and I was gonna get up and. And I remember the guys are sort of watching and <laughs> we had a camera. One of the interesting things with the Pikes is we've had a video camera since 86. So we've got lots of great footage that Donnie is kind of the uh, archivist for the band. And he will, he posts this stuff now. And then I, I hope he never posts <laughs> what I'm going to tell you about, which because what it was, which was, I'm looking, I'm going, what are you guys watching? And I, I'm just watching for a minute. And then they're laughing their guts out. 
<laughs> I passed out in the bar. So they dragged me by my feet to the elevator and, and they couldn't get me on all the way. And the doors were sort of to close and they would get to my head and go, Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. So if it wasn't, you know, it's funny and tragic at the same time. And I remember looking at that going, oh, and I was so I didn't even want to walk by the front desk, you know, and I've had a thousand or more instances like that in my life of things that I go, why did that? Why did I do that? You know, just bad, bad decisions. And uh Anyway, that you would think that something like that would be a catalyst to kind of sober up, and and it wasn't, you know. And I would get, you know, I'd have periods when I'd be, kind of be pretty good shape, and then I, I was always, t- you know, type A. I could kind of just drink like crazy, and then get up and try and function the next day. I would still try and do that, but it got harder as time went on. And no, and then I remember, uh, well, two times. I guess in two thousand six, I ended up. I'm going to a treatment center for the first time. And I was, I was kind of going back and forth to Toronto and I was staying with my, staying with my niece who was living there. And I just, uh, I had arrived from Saskatoon and, and she was supposed to be at the apartment. She wasn't. And so I went to the bar next door and then uh, the, you know, the next, I have not much memory of that other than, going to the bar next door and then the next morning my sister calling me and being very upset with me because I had uh, I left all my stuff I had my briefcase with all my work and my my little travel suitcase in the bar you know I had like my computer I had like oh my so and I went back to the to the room and I was you know wasted and then or to the apartment and then my niece went down she said well where's your suitcase and I go I don't know and really, she went down and got it for me and brought it back. Luckily, nobody had stolen it. Anyway, that was a pretty good reality check. And my, I remember, you know, getting to that point where, and I had had at that point, I'd had a number of interventions from my family, you know, where they sit down and go, look, you got a problem. You got to deal with this. And yeah. so, and, you know, I had, I had been in and out of various, you know, recovery programs and I just hadn't, uh, <laughs> I was just back in this ugly world and uh, yeah, I ended up, so I made a call and I just ended up going to a treatment center a few days later in Quebec. And uh, it was, I was there for 30 days. It was, it was good for me. I needed to do that, but unfortunately I relapsed, I guess about a few weeks after I got out of there and, uh, and then went on, you know, the bender, biggest bender of all time for a couple of months there. And, uh, and then really got to the point where there was no more intervention. I just remember my, you know, I think it was my sister or my brother just saying, we're not, we're not going to do this anymore. You, you go do what you want. If you want to go kill yourself and check into a flea bag hotel and drink yourself to death, go ahead. But mm-hmm. we're not going to be part of this. So, so that was a good reality check. I had to kind of take a good, uh, <laughs> a good look at where I was at with that. And I, and then it, and it worked because I, once I kind of committed to doing that, a lot of things kind of fell into place, you know, somewhat naturally. And I really devoted myself to that for, for quite a while. And then, uh, and I, I ended up having, I get, I was sober for 10 years. I was, you know, and then, and then 2017, 
a number of things happened. And I, like I say, I can never blame any event or anything, but I know what some of the triggers were. And one of them was the death of my mother in 2017. And I kind of, uh, over the next year, I sort of started, you know, I had a few slips and then I finally just kind of lost it, went on a, on a bender, but, but this was before it got too, too bad. And, and I realized I do need, I do need some help. And so, uh, then I went to a different treatment center, actually in Manitoba. I was there for two months, and that was the last time I went to a treatment center. I mean, I've also, I've been, I have been in, uh, you know, I've spent time in the psychiatric ward when I was first diagnosed with bipolar disorder, although back then, in the early 80s, it was called manic depression, right. which, which is much more colorful and interesting. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good description of what manic depression was like. Let's stay awake for three days and do amazing things you know and then let's crash and be so depressed we want to kill ourselves for three days you know that's that was unfortunately where i was at and i needed to balance that out and it was exaggerated through booze and drugs i mean it's just like Mm -hmm. (laughs) i liked i liked being out of myself you know so anyway my second stint which i wasn't happy about and i really would i kind of go what the hell have you done here you were sober for 10 years how did this happen you know and uh but it did and you learn you just learn little by little. And I feel like everything happens for a reason. And, you know, it's sort of, uh, there was a reason for me to, to go through that. And, you know, I I've learned now to not take any of that for granted. I have to be pretty vigilant. There's certain things I need to do every day that are really important for me. And, uh, you know, and and a big part of it is staying in touch with my community of recovery people and, you know, staying uh, regularly being in touch with them regarding all that stuff. And it's, it, it helps. I mean, it's just, uh, and you have to, ultimately it's me though. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I have, there's been many people in my life and I was the same way. If you're not ready, you know, if you still feel like you can go out and and use and Mm -hmm. drink or whatever you want to do, then great. That's your choice to do that. You know, for, for me, uh, you know, you get to the point where, I mean, you know, the last time I went, and, it, and you know, they, there's a saying when you hear this in the recovery world sometimes, that every time you, you get clean and then you go back to it, 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 it'll be worse. And that's definitely been my experience. It's been worse. And I just know that, and I, I know by the end of the day, if there's certain things I haven't done during the day in regards to maintaining my sobriety, then I, then I do them. It's kind of like, you know what? I won't be able to sleep until I do this. Right. So this is what I got to do. And the, you know, during the time of COVID, so many things happened online and that was how a lot of the connections happened. And I, I did have my problems with that too. That was, I mean, the first few months of COVID were, <laughs> I, I don't know, I, but mind you, I was not using my meds properly, you know, and uh, that kind of thing. And so I was kind of all over the map and I found, I just, I needed a break from social media. So the fall of 2020, I was, I was off. Yeah. I, I got rid of my cell phone. <laughs> I wasn't hardly on the computer right. and uh, unless absolutely necessary. And then I started again in January of 2021 with a different attitude and a different way of looking at things and, and, and a vow to myself more than anything to just be more positive and try and there was just so much tension and negativity going on at that time. And I, I, I tend to get sucked into that. And so I have to be aware of that, you know, and I, but I'm not afraid to talk about it. There was a lot of stigma 
you know, especially when I was younger, I remember the first time I went to the psych ward, it was at the Saskatoon City Hospital. I was 20, 22, and I was suicidal, and I was, you know, using every possible drug I could get my hands on to get out of myself. And, uh, you know, and it was physically getting kind of tough. <laughs> yeah. And I remember coming upstairs and being so hungover. I was back at my folks' house, and then uh, and I had the shakes so bad. And I remember I had the shakes, and I was just not in good shape and you know my mother i remember she was you know she sort of looked at what's with you what ha what has happened to you you know and so she called the doctor and then i went to see the doctor and that was sort of a so i've been blessed that have been people that have actually cared enough to kind of make a call and you know and to and to really call me on my on my crap sometimes too <laughs> you know you kind of need a reality check because it's yeah. i'm a great procrastinator and you know, and as a person, recovering person yourself, you, you know, the deal, you just have to, but it, it feels good to wake up and not, you know, to have a memory of what you did the oh. night before to not go, how did I get this black eye? Yes. How did I break my toe? How did I, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yep, Looking I out do. to see, did I drive a car last night? I better oh. look and, see, you know, things like that. Like I kind of go, I don't miss any of that at all and yeah. sometimes i i feel like my life might be a little bit placid or boring to yeah. <laughs> some but not really because there's a, it's a bit of a i find sobriety itself is sort of its own drug for lack of another term it, i know that doesn't sound yep correct but mm -hmm. just that whole for instance it's like oh well i don't have to you know, it's, I can actually get in. If I need to get groceries, I'll go in the car and get them, even though it's seven o'clock at night, because I haven't been drinking since four. Right. You know? Although there were times when I would have done that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> For yep. sure. There's times yeah. when I would have done that. But, I did the and, same. Uh, but at the same time, <laughs> you know, now it's kind of like, oh, so there's just a lot of bonus. There's a lot of bonuses about this. On that note, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Keith Richards. We'll be right back. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you liked and even what you didn't like. Have you got a show or guest idea? Well, drop us a line. Our email addy is info at theessenceofcool.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Now let's get back to the show. We talk a lot about what the definition of cool and people have said cool is, uh, means that you, you don't really care what the critics or the fans think of your music, that you're ever changing, that you're always trying something new. What is your definition of cool as it pertains to an artist? Well, I would say one of the most important things is a sense of uh, self-knowledge and a sense of confidence in whatever they're doing. I mean, with Keith Richards, well, first of all, I guess I was first of all attracted to Keith Richards as a kid because he had that sort of the shag hair. And I just loved, I loved so many of the riffs. He, he was kind of the king of guitar riffs, <laughs> you know, when you think of, and, and after having read his autobiography, I mean, a big part of that was the, you know, the tunings that he used that allowed him to get cool voicings with the strings and that kind of thing. And my definition of cool is somebody who is uh, not following any particular trend, 
not that they're not aware of it or not that they can't be aware of what's currently going on, but that they feel confident enough in their own path as an artist that they don't need to be affected by by other things like that. And I, I think with Keith Richards, I look at somebody who's kind of been doing sort of the same thing for a long time, but is not averse to other music opportunities, you know? And I mean, I, I guess I do have some kind of a personal connection there to a certain extent because Keith Richards, got, he was signed to Virgin Records, the same label that we were on. Oh. And, uh, and he got to be good friends with Doug Chappelle, who was a, the president of Virgin Records and was a really good friend and our, and the, you know, the A&R and the president of, of Virgin Records. And so when Keith's first solo record came out, Doug spent a lot of time with him and they came to play and Doug was just knocked out with the live show. And in fact, so much so that it was being recorded and he, he burned off just a few CDs for close friends of the first song, which I think was 999. And uh, it was a recording of this very first song of this concert. And there's something, uh, there's something with Keith Richards' songwriting style and mannerisms that just have always been fascinating to me. I just find him just sort of a, and even now he looks, let's face it, he certainly has a different physical appearance. But when you see him play the guitar, and I've seen clips of them recently, there's just that element of what I guess is called je ne sais quoi. You don't know. You don't know what it is, but it's just there, and he has that. And I don't mean in a in a stage magnet way, like like Mick Jagger. To me, is he's magnetic. When I've I've seen the Stones a few times, and and there's just a fascination about him. And Sting is the same way too. And I've seen Sting in concert with the Police and as a solo artist. Mm-hmm. There's a bit of an aura around around him that I have found that just sort of, I, I can't define it. It's just, there's, and part of it's confidence, just that feeling of I can do no wrong. And I remember there was a, a good quote from Keith Richards that said, and he, he says that he says, confidence is King. He said, if, if I'm not confident as a person on stage presenting my music and my art to people, how can I expect anybody to ever enjoy what I'm doing or to, or to be, uh, to accept this? You have to show that there's a commitment from you as the artist. Like, I really believe this. This is, this is not just a half baked thing. This is all or nothing. And this is me doing this. And that's one thing I learned from him. And there, there is an all or nothing thing. And I do remember in the movie, uh, Gimme Shelter, which is really about the Stones' 1969 American tour, culminating in this free show at uh, Altamont Speedway outside of San Francisco, where the Hell's Angels were the security force, and it turned out to be, you know, there were bad drugs floating around. It turned out to be a terrible, violent situation where somebody was killed and many people beaten and injured and stuff like that. And there's a point when these huge people that are, you know, and obviously really out of it, like really altered conscious states on stage from Hell's Angels are really behaving aggressively. And Keith stops and he's this kind of skinny little guy. And he's saying, you know, and I don't remember exactly what he says. He said, that, that guys, those guys are beating on everybody. We're not playing again until they get out of here. And he's sort of like this little, <laughs> little right. one lone person with a guitar is calling the shots and they're listening to him. Yeah. And he's kind of like, you know, F you, you do what I say because I'm in charge here. And I remember thinking, that's that's guts. I mean, he's in this position that is probably, you know, you've got bikers, <laughs> angry bikers on acid right. that are, you know, and I don't not and I don't want to denigrate bike biker as I guess I angry Hells Angels members 
at that time, anyway, 1969, it, you knew that no good could come of this when people are walking around sawed, sawed off pool cues and things like that. I mean, it's just, uh, and him him just sort of standing up and going, this is what it was. And I also like the fact that when he, uh, you know, he got caught in one of the most terribly, I, I would think at that point that was pretty embarrassing and pretty terrible in 1977 when he got arrested in t- Toronto right. for drugs, you know, <laughs> because he had kind of, he kind of had, he'd been arrested for drugs back, you know, in the sixties and stuff. And I know what it was like. I know how I felt when I, when I slipped and I, I got back drinking again after having a lot of clean time in and it, you really don't feel good about yourself. you you really feel low. Like it's just like, and that, that was part of the big challenge is crawling out of that pit and just sort of going, okay, yeah, you made a mistake. Get back, get back up here, man. Just do the stuff. You know what you got to do if you want to keep your shit together. <laughs> so get back, do what you need to do. And and I thought that that was handled pretty well. He got he got cleaned up and he uh you know and I know that you know he's I'm sure that I think he still drinks and things like that but he he got away from his his main addiction which was which was heroin and then you know and had did the concert in Oshawa and the new barbarians and I I thought it was handled quite well overall as as opposed to how it could have been handled and I think the fact that he has probably enough of an ego that he's not going to let himself die, you know, right. from that. And that, that's why it's really tragic when you see things like, you know, with Prince and Tom Petty and, you know, two artists as huge as you could get. They were super amazing, talented people and drugs killed them. And it's just really like such an eye opener. You go, wow, like there's because I've told myself many times, well, geez, when I when I when I make millions of dollars and my, you know, I'm set financially and personally, then it'll be great. And I'll be able to just not get high and not drink and everything will be great. It'll be so easy. Then it's like, no, it isn't. You're never going to get there in the first place because you've got this monkey on your back. It's always a, a problem. It always affects everything you do, you know? So yeah, no, Keith Richards, I've never met him, but I, yeah, like I say, the personal the thing was Doug Chappelle just loved Keith and thought he was the coolest guy. They loved to play pool. They would play pool and just thought he was just had a great attitude, just a great attitude towards life and just go get it. You know, it's like he had a, it's like he crawled out of the grave when he got off heroin basically. And, and, and has had that, that joie de vivre ever since, you know, and he had a, Doug loved his friendly swagger. I guess that's how he would have maybe just, you know, it wasn't a, there was a bit of a, old pirate swagger but right. not in a negative way at all and a, and a pure just a pure love of music just absolutely just right loves music you know right. and lives breathes music 24 hours a day that's what doug said and true i just saw um a documentary on uh, it was netflix about keith and um he he does have a genuine love of music and in fact he's kind of almost a musicologist he really knows so much about the blues and about country and about gospel and about reggae i mean you name it he just seems to you know and he just sucks it all up like a sponge but he's also still at 78 79 so passionate about the guitar i you know i watched him during that uh, that documentary and i saw a clip just prior to a, a stones gig i must not that long ago where he's just kind of strumming away but he's so 
in the zone that when he picks up that guitar, the world can go to hell. It's just him and that that instrument, you know? And what is it about that connection, do you think? I don't know. I think he's just one of those people that just loves to, he just lives the, a guitar and it's almost like an appendage yeah. for him. You know, you sort of get that vibe. And I think he found a kindred soul with Ron Wood because yeah. I think even though they've, they played with some great musicians. And I mean, I th guess I'd have to say my musically, my favorite kind of era of the Stones would have been the Mick Taylor era of from, course. you know, sticky fingers up to it's only rock and roll. Right. Having said that, though, I love a lot of the really early stuff with Brian Jones mm -hmm. and they've done some great stuff with with Ron Wood. And I love that black and blue album that was described as kind of the you know, guitarist tryout right. <laughs> in the audition record for other artists, other guitar players. So there's kind of neat stuff going on there. But I think it's just a genuine uh, connection with the guitar. And and he obviously had to spend a lot of time. And he, I think what happened, it's interesting reading his book, the, the autobiography is I think he, he tried to find a way, he knew by the late 60s, you know, he even though he, he had his own style and a distinctive style, he needed to find something to make him stand out or something. And he wasn't like a Jimmy Page that was like a virtuo or like Eric Clapton, virtuoso like that, you know, being able to just play or a Jimi Hendrix or somebody that was, you know, just a monster shredder guitar player. Mm -hmm. But he did have his own style and he needed to find some way to make that better. And so to, to, to make that switch from using the regular tuning, and he talks about what an epiphany it was for him to switch over to the open tuning and how it opened so many doors and he came up with so many interesting riffs like you can think of gimme shelter or you know brown sugar or so many things but even the early days i mean you know satisfaction i mean jumping jack flash those are riff songs you know what i mean they right. that neat riff and they kind of work around it and it seems like a good way for a band to kind of put songs together mm -hmm. and you would hear these stories actually merle former pike merle had a, a bootleg record and uh, I remember listening to it. You had to really be a fan <laughs> to like it. But I used to, there was a mail order place back when I was a teenager. And you could order, you could order these records from this place in, I don't know, New Jersey. And it was, and you could find these things that were pretty obscure. And I'm sure probably not, well, obviously not really legal but not really illegal either it was that gray area of where does that sort of sit i would sometimes order records from them same with merle and he had a record that and the whole album is uh the rolling stones in the studio working on the song tumbling dice and it's just them basically playing it over and over and stopping and starting and kind of talking and you can you can't hear them that clear. You have to kind of turn it up really loud because it's the studio mics, etc. And uh, interesting to hear how that song goes from here and then goes to there. And it's just them playing it, jamming, stopping, saying, let's change this part or let's do this here and let's pick up the tempo or, you know what I mean? All the elements that you need to do and listening to that, to them develop it. And I love, I love the fact that that's no different than any band I've ever been in. It's the same. Those guys are a superstar rock band, and it's the same thing. You just dig away at it, and you work at it, and you just do it. You just there's no other method of of doing it, but other pure pure effort combined with with skill and talent and years of experience and practice. But it's no different. It's no them doing that was no different than the band of thirteen year old kids in their parents' basement 
jamming for the first time, trying to figure out how the song goes. Thank you so much, Jay. It's been a real pleasure talking to you and uh, much success. Thanks, Bernard. It's been a blast chatting here, you know. <laughs> There was actually so much more to our conversation, but I had to cut it back because time just ran out. Thanks to Jay, especially for opening up about addiction and his struggle to get sober. You can catch up with him at jsemko.com, northernpikes.com, and on Facebook and Instagram at jsemko. Until next time, I'm Bernard Fraser saying please support local independent artists. (laughs) 